I'm Amy Halpern Laugh. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools, where we discuss strategies for creating inclusive and equitable schools and youth programs that help students to develop both commitment and capacity to build ethical institutions. Our guest today is Quentin Walcott, known as Q. Q is co-executive director of Connect, a New York City nonprofit dedicated to preventing interpersonal violence. His focus for over 20 years has been working with men to prevent intimate and gender-based violence. He's co-founder and chief organizer of the Father's Day Pledge Against Violence. Q was awarded the United Nations Trust Fund to End Violence Against Women Award in 2014, and he was the first man to receive the NOW NYC Susan B. Anthony Award. He has led anti-violence trainings in Brazil, Canada, Fiji, France, India, Kenya, St. Martin, South Africa, Switzerland, and Thailand. Welcome, Q. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Q, the Connect NYC website says that the foundation of your work is a focus on the intersections of violence, race, class, and gender, and its impact on marginalized communities. What does that mean? Uh, that means um, our entry point into this conversation about preventing violence is through domestic violence and intimate partner violence. But actually, the reality is that people are just not experiencing intimate partner violence. They're experiencing systemic violence, experiencing violence in communities and, uh, you know, many different forms and ways that kind of violence shows up in people's lives. So, you know, when we first started Connect, we kind of did our, you know, what we call guerrilla research, research with not a lot of money and really going out to communities and asking people in front of laundromats, supermarkets, train stations, what are your, what are your issues around domestic violence specifically? And um, do you think it's an issue? Does your community deal with it? If they do, why do they engage in those services? If they do not, why not? So what we learned from doing our research initially was those street surveys, focus groups, other types of conversations with you know, men, women, children, educators, um, health, people that are in the health services and communities. And the reality was that domestic violence was an issue. Some people did not go to use services because of fear of deportation, because of their immigration status. Um, poor relationships with the police did not see the police as a, a means of getting help because of the relationships, police brutality, and what have you in, in communities. And many other issues. So what, what we did learn was that domestic violence was an issue Gunning gang violence was an issue, HIV and AIDS was an issue, um, and then kind of navigating systems was an issue for many people. So our approach is an uh, intersectional approach and really kind of making sure that domestic violence, which is primarily seen as a women's issue, is taken seriously as a crime and an issue in the city like other forms of crime. Not to say that, you know, we were really looking for you know, the same type of punishment as uh, that really kind of breaks down differently depending on your race, class, gender, and your relationship to uh, systems. But just to, so that it's considered a crime that can be taken seriously in communities and, to, and that we can hold public leaders and systems accountable to it. You've created programs to transform men and boys and even batterers into activists against violence. Can you give some examples of what this process of transformation looks like for individuals? Yeah, I mean, it's, it takes shape in many different forms. You know, initially, when we, before we became Connect, as you may know, we were part of the Urban Justice Center. We had a relationship with the child welfare system. And what we learned was that, 
Abusive partners, primarily men, in these cases, 80 to 90% of the cases that are reported were men were abusing women, women and girls to some capacity, weren't being held accountable. And then so what we felt was important was that uh, to take the onus and responsibility off of victims and survivors of violence, primarily women and mothers, that we need to really engage men and boys as a preventive measure, number one, and also to develop uh, effective intervention tools and models. So that was our work to kind of, and that's why I came to connect to really develop the uh, training institute and also the men's programs and services. So for us, it's um, meeting, you know, it very, sounds very cliche, but meeting men and boys where they are. And in, in many cases, that's in communities, that's in churches, that's in schools, that's in workplaces. So our approach is to really kind of meet with them, talk to them, transform the attitudes and belief systems that really manifest in violence against women and girls and violence against other men as well. So it's, it's meeting them where they are, going out to communities, having them come to us through roundtables and, and group work that we do. We're doing a lot of restorative justice now um, to really kind of, you know, see where men are, what their thinking is, how they develop these notions of manhood and fatherhood and their ideas and perceptions of women and girls and other men. And then really kind of moving them from you know, looking at what, what accountability is in a real effective way that kind of lives within systems and outside of systems to kind of really look at self-awareness, acknowledging, you know, the harm that they've done. Um, secondly, to really understand that there is a consequence to this, regardless of what it may be through a system or not, but there's some form of consequence that they have to go through and really realizing that they've done harm and that impacts other people and themselves. And then the third part of it was to really kind of go through this change piece where we wanted them to really change the thinking, therefore the behavior, and to really kind of look at what, what that can look like. And we try to be really creative around that and what that can look like. And really, you know, holding men accountable in a different way. And our Father's Day pledge, for one example, is, is like one, it's, it's an event, but it's something that builds up throughout the year where men that we work with, either through men that are kind of identified as abusive partners or doing harm, or even men that are working with men and boys in some capacity. So we provide a space for everyone to kind of come and have some of these conversations. It's really about critical thinking. And, you know, we talk about ethics all the time. What is ethical? What is moral? And really what, what kind of, and how does this kind of manifest in your thinking, behavior, and around other people and bystanders? So can you give some examples of what this would actually look like in terms of, say, a particular man or a particular teenager, you know, how that transformation actually happens. I mean, what are the interactions, how someone goes from just sort of thinking, well, this is normal or this is a, a good thing I'm doing or this is the way, you know, men are supposed to act or whatever to really internalizing and then acting on a different kind of understanding. Right, right. I mean, just like, you know, there's adult learning styles, there's, you know, young people learn in different ways, different modalities. So what we try to do is use a cross-section of modalities so something will kick in and will click for a young person. To be honest with you, we do a lot of um, storytelling and we train people, but we also do it through a really unique and creative style. Storytelling, we use uh, pop culture, we'll show, you know, video clips of uh, movies and videos that they may have seen really ask some, ask uh, really fun, you know, some really critical questions around, you know, looking at socialization, male socialization in particular, and then really breaking that down. How do we come to think this way? How do we come to behave this way? 
Where do we get this from? What were some of the examples around us to help form these decisions and this behavior? So we'll use, you know, video, we'll use, um, we'll have people that have been harmed come in and, you know, tell their story as much as they humanly, humanly feel comfortable with. So they'll tell their experience of um, what it was like to be abused in a relationship or some, some form of harm done by an individual, a community or a system, and really kind of break that down. So we'll break, we'll talk about, for instance, you know, work with young people in schools. Pretty much what we do with adult men, we, we really kind of ask the question of um, why did this behavior happen? Like one question we would always ask is why do men and boys battle in abuse? Right. Not to say that no one else is abusive, but really kind of harping in and being intentional about who we're talking to and why do you think that happens? So people come up with many different reasons from witnessing it as a child, witnessing it in the community, um, you know, thinking about it being related to alcohol and substance abuse. It be related to, you know, cultural and kind of the cycle of violence that permeates in, in uh, families and, you know, from a religious context, cultural context, and really kind of breaking that down to really seeing that, you know, violence is not the way that communities or people respond to violence is uh, more of a choice, um, a complex choice, but that most people are not violent uh, and kind of looking at that and why, they, why it's just made to be violent or not. So, you know, it'll be for a young person really breaking down what is their behavior where they got that from, what is the consequences to it, and um, what supports it in society, you know, and really kind of breaking down male privilege, male entitlements, and just kind of looking at power, this dynamic of power and how that kind of shows up, why people want it, what they do with it. So a lot of it is, and then using, you know, a video or a movie clip to break that down because they can understand it. Once they've gone through some training and understanding you know, types of abuse, the impact of abuse on, you know, child development and thinking. Um, so we'll break that down and use that as an example. And once they kind of get this, it's just one, it's not a one size fits all. So it's like some people get an aha, aha moment, you know, like, okay, I understand this now. I see where this came from. I see how, you know, I contribute to it and how I can resist it as well. And that's when kind of transformations happen. And, you know, one of the things I always ask is, um, when I do a, a training or a workshop, you know, who here is um, stand up or raise your hand if who here has witnessed violence in, in your home or in your community? And most people stand up. And then I ask the question, who here has been, has been harmed in some way? Some people stand up and then I ask this question about who has done harm to someone else. Very few people want to admit or accountable to that at that point, but then, some people do, and some people have never, you know, never took a seat when I asked those questions or never put their hand down. Mm-hmm. And all that means is to say that, particularly around domestic violence or interpartner violence, it's not a private issue, it's a public issue. We've either seen it, we've been victim to it, or we've been responsible for doing harm to others. So it kind of, you know, makes it a very public thing. And once we become public and, it, and we can tell our stories around it, we can get the help that we need without it being a taboo issue. So a lot of it is um, working on an individual level, working in, in relationships, like how how's it show up in relationships and how it shows up in communities. And then what are the systemic responses and what are the ways that we can get help around 
safety and transforming that behavior. Can you give us an example of what that aha moment looks like when a young man realizes that he's been an abuser and that there are consequences and that he wants to change? Right. Um, it could be either through an exercise, you can see a change in the face. Because one of the things that we do is we really teach critical thinking and critical uh, listening, right? So to ask that question, why? Why does this happen this way? And, you know, and like try, and looking at trauma in communities and relationships and families and that, you know, when unhealthy things are happening in relationships or within families and it goes unaddressed and it continually happens, it becomes uh, normalized. So mm-hmm. this idea of, you know, normalized trauma and to explain to people that that is not normal, that should not be happening. Um, for some, that could be the aha moment or seeing their own behavior in someone else. So like doing group, you know, group processes or circles and hearing a story from someone else, they get to see their own kind of reality come to shape. And then um, for some, it's that. For some, it could be hearing from some, like, a, you know, this idea of a credible messenger. And I believe that's important, but not only a credible messenger, but looking at other people and their experiences and choices that they've made that have kind of really changed their narrative or trajectory in a particular type of way. Sometimes it's just simply that, or it can, you know, just kind of really breaking down when they have been harmed or a victim of some form of violence or situation or bullied in some way and how that felt to getting kind of into the emotional sides of that, how did it feel? And then why do we uh, continue to cycle or why do we project our pain and things that we've um, dealt with on someone else. Sometimes it's that, which is kind of giving back what we've been giving or, and then really breaking down these ideas of what masculinity is, right? And what kind of shapes masculinity and not really just harping on what is really the popular term right now in toxic masculinity, but the different forms of masculinities that kind of take shape. And sometimes just in that conversation, you can see that like, you know, I always talk about a client that I had. He was witnessing violence in a home. His parents were in a domestic violence uh, situation. And as a result, he thought he can change that dynamic by, it became like a, he became adultified one because he had younger siblings and he felt he was in a position to really kind of protect them. Then he also felt that his mom was his responsibility. You know, that because he wasn't there all the time, his father was being abusive towards the mom. So as a result, he would cut school or stay home because the fear was that if I go to school, something's going to happen to mom. Or also thinking that because the abuse was happening, it must have been the children's fault. They weren't doing well in school or some way of kind of using the children to get back and to get a parent. So all those dynamics young people have to kind of struggle with and when, when you think about when you're at home and everything is safe and you can be your true, genuine self in terms of masculinity, you don't have to put on this hyper-masculine, toxic masculine mask, I like to frame it as. You can be more closer to your true self, taking care of your siblings, you know, being loving in a nurturing environment. But then when you go to school, and depending on your environment, your community environment, you might have to put on a more uh, hyper masculine mask because you have to navigate 
gang recruitment. You have to navigate police. You have to navigate all of these kind of potentially unhealthy things in your neighborhood. So you're using your toxic masculinity as a defense rather than just using masculinity in a negative way just to be negative and controlling and powerful over someone else. You're using it as a protection to other forms of masculinity. So really kind of breaking down and discussing with someone what is their experience like and then targeting in, you know, what are the critical questions that you can ask them so they can kind of see and manifest in their own ability to see where they've done harm and how they can, you know, approach it another way. But really, again, asking the question, why? Why were those decisions made? Why did you decide to do that? And breaking that down. So you've been talking a lot about trauma. And, you know, there's been a lot of research on, like, the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, and that if people have more than a certain number of ACEs experiences, that they're more likely to be violent, let's say. And, you know, that children who've been abused are... You know, more likely to be abusers in turn, or sometimes absolutely not. So it sounds as though what you're doing is working right on the edge of that. So how do you, um, I mean, it's just, I was an abused child. And at some point when I was thinking about having a family, I had to confront how was I not going to replicate that abuse. And it was really, for me, it was this very concrete, specific, and clear moment of, okay, if I'm not going to do that, then what am I going to do? And I'm, I'm just curious, how do you, you know, deal with this issue of ACEs and the odds being against people being able to break free from that? It's not, I'm not asking the question very clearly. I guess you. I guess you. Um, you know, ACEs is a is a tool. You know, one tool, because a lot of people that have experienced you know abuse in their lives, they don't take the test, but it shows up anyway. So you know, it's it's a good indicator. It can't, it's an indicator. And there used to be specific statistics around children who have wit- who have been abused or have witnessed violence in a home, and the likeliness that they would be either abusive or abused. You know, a lot of people don't think about that part of it, um, that they would be abused in their adult relationships or teen relationships. So those are all indicators. And I think that, like, for, for example, and thanks for sharing that, uh, John, the example of, you know, Chris Brown, Chris Brown and Rihanna's situation that came up, mm-hmm. you know, several years ago now. Chris Brown was a child witness to violence, right? In his mind, he said that, he would not be abusive in his relationship, learn martial arts and all these different types of things. But young people have to learn how not to be violent. You could say, I can make a decision not to, but if I don't have the tools or the support or even the ability to even express my feelings around this, you know, cause like survivors are silenced, but children are the voice of the voiceless, right? So if we're not tapping into them and really kind of seeing what is their explanation of what happened around them? Do they see this as, un- as normal? Is this how mothers and fathers behave? Is this how men and women behave? Really kind of breaking some of that down to give them some better opportunity, I think, to kind of really digest around what relationships are like, what's healthy, what is unhealthy. And think about the tools that are available 
to many people that many people use them. Some people don't. And all the ways of dealing with conflicts, negotiation, you know, all these different types of things that sometimes when we were growing up, the adults around us did not use. And this idea of parents who are abused, you know, and a lot of, a lot of times there's been, you know, theories around moms or whoever the parent is being abused will take out the abuse that they're receiving on someone that they have power over and sometimes that's children. You know, there's studies that have said that, that has been debunked in many ways, but just the idea that you're around violence, so, you know, you kind of yield to violence because that's seemingly uh, an effective means of getting what you want done, but then in the short term, but in the long term, it has, you know, detrimental effects on, you know, children's development. Q, is that related to other types of kind of long-term versus short-term thinking? I mean, I think we see in people who've been traumatized and who have very low expectations that we see some short-term thinking. Um, right, right. I think, you know, in short-term, is always the, the quick, it's the quick way out. It's, um, I think it's also a gender piece. You know, a lot, of, a lot of men and boys, because of privilege and power, have this expectation of, I need to get this thing done now. And this is the way to do it. And if I hit you or harm you, or I instill fear in you, I get my way, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it has a lot to do with that. And then, so a lot of this work, because of, you know, sometimes we're dealing with adults or we deal with older people, it may not be, you know, you need to have, if you experienced violence or abusive situation for 20 years, that it takes another 20 years to do that because we have, you know, a lot of tools that we can use now. But it is a, it's kind of the, like the long haul, you know, you have to put, invest in it and teach people. And I think that way, I think it proves to be more beneficial, but there are some quick fixes. I don't believe in a quick fix because everybody wants the five steps of what to do. <laughs> One size fits all. So different people, right. different experiences around violence. Right. So gender plays a role. Race plays a role. Ethnicity, you know, just different cultural beliefs and backgrounds all play a role around how you perceive violence and what is unhealthy and what is not unhealthy. Hmm. When you talk about consequences, you mentioned that a few times, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by that. So if, for example, the criminal justice system is not involved, um, what, what do consequences look like in accountability? Yeah, I mean, we've been looking at restorative justice to kind of really figure out what, and not, not to say that RJ is a solely an alternative to criminal justice, because, you know, we don't want to really kind of pattern it in a way that there's a consequence if you don't feel that. But we want to kind of look, use restorative justice to figure out what are the consequences and what needs to happen to build accountability. So the idea is, when we think about consequences, that something, this harm that has been done, sometimes, you know, most likely, the, uh, we're kind of socialized to, to deal with harm or deal with, deal with some personal injustice by calling the police or dealing with the court system, but socialized that way automatically. So sometimes it may be a criminal justice response and likely that's not effective. And then also the consequences may be that you have to do something, you know, you have to go to a a batter's intervention program for 26 weeks to 30 weeks. You may have to build some form of uh, you know, you may not, you may have to 
not work or lose lose money. Some there's some some other consequences to realize that there is that you just the idea that you can't do harm and expect nothing to happen to you, right? So there's some level of consequence, and sometimes the consequence is built into the change. So ideally, in a restorative justice concept, the person who's done the harm, his feedback, one acknowledges that they've done harm, and then the consequence could be, or the change plus change could be that the person who was harmed wants the person who, so the responsible party to do something as a result of the harm that they've done. And that could be go to school, go back to school. I want you to read, you know, 10 books by feminists. I want you to you know, get a skill or a trade. You know, I want you to do some type of uh, community service back to the community in some form. And then, then the other piece around the restorative justice would be the community. So like the community or the bystanders in the community or the ones who I'm really most concerned about, right? Because I want them, because they can change, they can build safety for someone who's been harmed or look at prevention and preventing future incidents of harm. The community can also hold the person who did the harm accountable. They can make sure that they don't continue that. They, they don't, either they transform that thought pattern or they, they don't support that negative behavior or that, that harm that was done by being silent or realizing that, you know, men kind of benefit when someone else is abusive towards a woman or a girl. So that brings up a kind of a broader question, which is what happens in the absence of community? Right. I mean, it's problematic. I work at Connect and that kind of looks at prevention and looks at, you know, this as a community issue, not just a women's issue or a men's issue, but it's the community that has to take this on. And like so many, when we started our work, folks said, you know, domestic violence is kind of, in its definition alone, it makes it an individual between them, usually between a man and a woman or just two people. So it's problematic just in its definition, but it's really something that kind of shows up in a real public way. Like you have a, a next door neighbor who's experiencing this, you hear the yells, you hear the screams, right. you hear, you know, it shows up in, in schools, right, with children who are sometimes misdiagnosed and put into special ed for behavior issues when they're just responding to the violence that they're receiving at home, right? Or, you know, medication or whatever it may be. But, you know, it's a very thing that happens in a home typically, but it has a very public impact. So community needs to take this on as a way of taking the onus responsibility off the victim survivor to be safe, protect their children, and hold the person responsible, accountable, and systems accountable for responding the right way. And then it can also play a role in holding the person who did the harm accountable as well. So faith institutions were the ways that people wanted to go when we did our research. They didn't want to go to the police because of fear of deportation or sending the person to harm, deporting them. So, you know, we organize and we work with, we do trainings with churches so they can kind of respond effectively to people that disclose they're being abusive in their, in their congregations um, or in their faith communities. So there's so many things that the community can do right. to kind of re- re- alleviate and prevent this from even happening. Like taking on, talking to young men and young girls about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and kind of debunking some of this binary thinking about what a man and what a woman is, which can also help to create more healthy relationships so those are just kind of some of the ways and working with schools 
and when we do work with schools, we don't just we just don't want to come in and work with a class for 45, 50 minutes. We want to work with them throughout the year. You know, that same class. We don't only want to work with the young people in the class. We want to work with the administration. We want to work with the teachers. We want to work with the guidance counselors, the security guards. All of these people can either say violence against women and girls is acceptable by not responding or just kind of saying or behaving in the same same way. Um, anywhere where there's young people who want to work with the adults in their lives. And that way, you know, for a comprehensive way of looking at this issue, the community can respond. And then also looking at domestic violence in relationship to gun and gang violence. Children who witness violence in a home are more apt to be involved with gun and gang violence. Children who, and like John mentioned, there's a greater chance, I won't even say what the statistics are, because I don't think that's so important at this point, but there's a greater chance that someone who's been harmed or witnessed harm will be harmful when they are in positions to do so. So just really kind of, you know, looking at the community, what they can do and where people can go and not just have this conversation about intimate partner violence or domestic violence during October when it's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, but it's part of your community organizing work, it's part of your social justice work that this is a causational issue. So speaking of schools, if a school or an after-school program wants to actively start doing this work, and obviously, you know, if you or Connect or the groups you're working with are available, they could partner with you. But if that's not an option, what would you recommend that they do? What are the essential elements of it? Um, How would they start it? What should it look like? If they can, you know, reach out to us directly, I would think to organically kind of really do this in a really effective way, I think is to have the people who are being impacted the most at the table from the very beginning, not as an add-on later, but like at the very beginning, if there's, you know, young people or young girls who are being impacted by teen dating violence or violence at home or young boys who are being harmed or, you know, witnessing violence in the home as well, to kind of have them at the table, you know, when you develop a program, see what's necessary and what's needed and having the adults in that school ally with these young people because we don't want to replicate the power and the abuse that young people are kind of seeking help from by, you know, controlling them in a way, just giving, empowering them in a real sense of like, what do you, what do you think is going on, what's needed? And collectively, you can, you can develop programs and schools that are effective. You know, sometimes people have that type of resource, but definitely look at guidance counselors who may be hearing stories about children who are experiencing violence and it impacts their schooling or their behavior in school as a, a way of kind of teaming up with them and then getting people at the table first, like, what could this look like? Because a lot of times, you know, John, you've, you've helped us in the past develop some school programming. And sometimes the school is like, all right, you guys come in, we'll give you, quote, unquote, all the, the troubled uh, students, and then you go off and do something with them. We're able to impact change with them, but doesn't help if it's not a systemic change that's going on in the school right. environment. So those are the best case scenarios when the school is adopting this from A to Z. That's why when I say when we want to go into school, we don't just want to work with these students, mm-hmm. teachers, guys, counselors, security guards, whoever's in, who's touching the lives of these young people, they need to be on board with this. So if a school is really you know, intent on doing that kind of cultural change within the school, um, how would that affect things like 
hiring and training? In, I mean, how do you embed that in the real fundamental things that happen in a school? I mean, if, if you can build it into your job description or, you know, you're looking for a guidance counselor or a teacher to kind of to come on for that semester or that year and building in that they have some type of experience or background, that's beautiful. But then also for those that are already there, you know, having workshops done for staff development, you know, bringing people in to kind of what are some of the signs to look for, you know, what dynamics around domestic, and, and you know, and it's domestic violence, you can Google it and you see the definition, but the complexity part of it is how does it kind of show up? What are the stories being told? What is the impact on people? And so having conversations and talking about that with school staff and those things kind of change the school culture. And that's exactly what it is, a culture shift in schools, culture shift in communities around, you know, what, how is violence and what does that look like? Because, you know, there's likely when it's domestic violence, there's other forms of violence happening as well. And also to kind of move away from the idea that domestic violence is a black eye or a bruise or a mark, that it's a psychological, emotional, financial, all these type of, type of tactics that are used to gain power control over someone else. Mm-hmm. Well, this emphasis on culture and community seems to intersect with New York State's new culturally responsive sustaining education framework, the CRS. Um, have you seen examples where this affects interpersonal and gender-based violence? You know, to be honest with you, I haven't seen it yet. You know, I would have to check in with my staff that are, you know, doing the school work. And, um, and I, to be honest with you, I mean, it's a struggle. Some of the schools that we work with, they don't even give us the access necessary to kind of really create a real and rich learning environment, you know. And, um, like, you know, sometimes, you know, I have staff that do workshops in uh, the storage room. You got a full class in the storage room doing workshops around gender violence, you know, and it's, um, so some of the schools have a long way to go. Some schools are really on top of it, you know, welcoming and inviting this in, you know, kind of really doing things that are more culturally responsible, but it's a struggle. You know, I think it's, it's a, it's a decadent system that where that was really lacking. Um, Some schools are more, more on top of it than others. And that's, and that's our approach. We want to approach this as a, cultural change issue, but also it's a cultural issue, right? You know, sure. that domestic violence doesn't discriminate no matter what your background is or country you come from or religion you believe or how you kind of live your day-to-day life. So it's really important to us to kind of look at the cultural aspects of this issue of, you know, violence against women and girls, domestic violence, systemic partner violence, because it's also the systemic response to these issues depending on your cultural background, your religious beliefs, your, your uh, gender, your race, your mm-hmm. sexual orientation, your identity, and all those different types of things all kind of play a role in how people get help or not. It's interesting as you're talking about the resistance in schools, and I'm just thinking that this is a place where parents' associations or student body groups or school leadership teams or community groups when people are talking about the schools in in the specific community and talking about a specific school and community-based organizations that are working with schools, it seems like it would be really useful for 
people to take this and make very specific demands on schools in right. terms of partly breaking down this idea because it's not just around what you're doing about it. It happens all the time in terms of when community groups are invited into schools and sometimes it's just seen as, okay, now we have this program and you know we'll find a room for them, like you're saying, maybe it'll be the storage room or maybe it'll be something else, but it doesn't really have anything to do with everything else that's going on in the school. Right, right, right. That's got to change. Yeah, and in some situations where we've had the perfect environment or it develops or blooms as a program develops and, you know, we, we would get all the time and my staff now that are in schools, they get feedback from the, from the professors or the teachers like, what are you all doing in that class? The student has showed up every day now. I've seen so much change in the student. So they want more. They want more. They want, so we've done, we've done workshops with teachers where we give them some little tools and techniques of what we're doing in that classroom setting with their students about what works and what's effective. And they've seen change, you know, like this program, these little programs can really build from the ground up and transform a community, uh, a school community, you know, if they allow it to. Sometimes it's, and I get it, schools are very overwhelming. They have a lot of issues they have to deal with on a day to day, but if they allow the space and time for this to happen, they'll see change. You know, there was a school in the Bronx. I remember the first day we came in to, t- to start the program, this kid was running from the, uh, security guards or police who I think they were police actually as security guards in school and he was like dodging them so he was in our program and then you know he, he would cut classes to come to this to our program which was like <laughs> seventh eighth period and then we were able to kind of work with him in a way when he took his uh SATs he scored the highest in his school right so he, he was just kind of one that kind of fell through the cracks but with the right environment and right people around you and influences, you can really dig deep and sift through what's floating to the top and see that this young person is very capable and willing to learn and kind of dig into what's happening in this path. So I have actually, this is going back um, earlier in the conversation, but you talked about how talking about ethics is, is an integral part of what you're doing. What does that look like? I mean, how do you, do you talk about ethics explicitly. I'm just curious what that looks like in practice. Yeah, we have to be very creative to kind of uh, keep people's attention. So there's nothing that we kind of talk about explicitly or intentionally, you know, again, through like this storytelling or posing a question, showing a clip, and really, you know, having people break that down. What are they seeing? What is, what seems correct? What seems incorrect? What's moral? What's what, what could be legal, but doesn't feel right. You know, it's, it's kind of like an indirect way of having some of these deep, complex conversations. And we do that in schools and also with the men's work that we do here. You know, I have a monthly round table and we pose those kind of big questions and themes. And, uh, and a lot of it is about ethics. It's about morality. It's about, you know, what's legal for on the books and how that kind of manifests in implementation for communities of color and men of color, women of color. So there's, you know, we have really creative ways of getting to those uh, conversations. Well, this has been great. Is, is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to add? Just to definitely, you know, support Connect's work. We're a, you know, New York City-wide nonprofit. 
We work in all five boroughs, we work in schools, we work in faith institutions. We do a lot of training. Uh, we have a training institute where we train people to do this work. You know, so it's not just us. Communities can go take this work on. And then, you know, this other thing that we do as a, the Father's Day Pledge Against Violence, we just completed our 10th year of doing that. I don't know if you know John, now it's in like, it's in 55 cities now. We started right here on the steps of uh, City Hall, steps downtown. And, you know, we're looking to bring it to uh, Washington, D.C. lawn um, next year, or at the very least in 2021. Just kind of really, you know, staying in, in touch with us and tapping into uh, our communities. And we'll post your information on our website. Right. Yeah, and that should, I mean, you mentioned that Connect is specifically New York City, but a lot of our audience is outside New York City. And actually, we have an international audience as well. So any resources that you think would be useful to people here in New York City or elsewhere, you know, we'll be happy to post. Right, and you can get in contact with me because I do work nationally and internationally as well. But, you know, in terms of Connect's work within the five boroughs, but we're also looking at that as well. Our model can be replicated. And we're already in conversations with other cities about, you know, how can we replicate our work in their cities. That's exciting. So thank you so much, Jim, Quentin Walcott. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, John. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. We'd like to hear how you've incorporated ideas you've heard on our podcast or read on the Ethical Schools blog. Please email us at hosts at ethicalschools.org, hosts at ethicalschools.org. You can check out prior episodes and articles on our site. We also do professional development with schools and youth programs in the New York City area, and you can contact us for details. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Ethical Schools and Instagram. And our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denton. Till next week. <laughs>